0: Welcome to Reality Church. You can go ahead and take a seat. Um, right now, I, um, I want to encourage you um, that however you came into this place today, wherever you've come from, if this is your first time here, uh, we want you to know that we have been intentionally designing this space according to the scriptures and also for you to be able to consider the claims of Jesus in a safe space. That if you have questions... Uh, that if you are curious about Christianity, that you'll be able to hear uh, the message here of Jesus and wrestle with those particular claims. We're going to be in the book of Acts. That's in the New Testament. And we've been there for the past couple of weeks in chapter 7. And today we're going to be taking a look at um, a very famous sermon that happens in the Scriptures uh, from a dude called Stephen. Okay, And it's only 60 verses. Okay, Um, I'm not going to do that to you this morning, okay? I wanted to, but I was like, no, that's too much. Uh, And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at um, Acts chapter 7. I'm going to read some verses from here. I do want to encourage you uh, to go home and read this for yourself, and it's extremely rich, but I want to lift some principles out of this sermon that I think have the potential to really transform uh, and help us to grow in Jesus Christ. Look, Acts chapter 7. I'm going to read from verses 44 to um, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Check this out. This is, we're catching the sermon on the last um, 30%. Okay? This is what Stephen um, says and what Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, documents. He says this in verse 44 Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the testimony in the wilderness. Just as he who spoke to Moses commanded him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our ancestors, in turn, received it. And with Joshua brought it in when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before them until the days of David. He found favor in God's side and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. It was Solomon, rather, who built him a house. But the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made With hands, as the prophet says, listen. Heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what will be my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? Follow me, it will make sense in just a moment. Verse 51, it says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels and yet have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were enraged. And gnashed their teeth at him at Stephen. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven, he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. and he said, "Look, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God." They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. They dragged them out of the city. And began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried with a loud voice. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. This is the word of the Lord. Kent Hughes, um, who was a scholar and a pastor, he makes the powerful observation that our final moments reveal the truth about who we are in the end. The French philosopher Voltaire, who was an atheist, he used to mock Christianity. He used to mock Jesus. He even said of Jesus, he said, curse the wretch. He famously said about Christianity this, in 20 years... Christianity will be no more. My single hand shall destroy the edifice it took 12 apostles to rear. However, in his final moments as Voltaire dies, he famously says the following, I am abandoned by God and man. I give you half of what I'm worth to give me six months of life. Then I shall go to hell, and you will go with me, O oh, Christ, O oh, Jesus Christ. Our final moments reveal who we are in the end. At the same time, there are some final moments in history that are filled with beauty. You think of John Wesley. His final words were, best of all, God with us. The best of all, he says it three times, God with us. The best of all, God with us. And today, we look at the story of this man, Stephen, and what does he say in the end? What happens in somebody's heart that as people are actually Killing him, he's able to say, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. What drives somebody's last words to be something like what Stephen said? What we're gonna do today over the next few minutes is take a look at some of the lessons that we learned from Stephen's final moments in life, especially in light of this message series that we've entitled A Better Story. You see, at the end of the day, it's clear that Stephen lived an incredible story. And if we look at his life, you're going to see at least three marks of being able to live an extraordinary story um, yourself. One of the things that we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks is that stories are how we make sense of the world and our place in it. And whether or not you realize it, every human being, there's a longing in us to answer the question, is there a story big enough for us to be able to live our lives upon that particular story? A a story that gives us ultimate meaning and purpose. What does it look like then to live a better story? I want to give you today three principles that emerge out of this text that will help you and me live a more compelling a better story, a Jesus-driven story. Number one, um, it's simple, it's easy, uh, easier said than done. You got to remember the story. <laughs> you got to remember it. You got to remember the story. As I mentioned to you, um, you know, this is um, 60 verses, okay? The sermon that we read from Stephen. And Stephen, he's not a pastor in the Bible. He's an ordinary man with extraordinary Faith, in fact, I want you to say this, Stephen is just like me. Stephen is just like me. Stephen is just like me. He's not a professional Christian. He's an authentic follower of Jesus who had just been assigned, if you were here last week, like pastors told him, hey, you know what? We're going to select seven leaders in the church to help us with the distribution of food among the widows that we have um, here. Stephen was just an ordinary man. Stephen was just like you and me. Amen? This was Stephen. The example of Stephen. You know what it shows us? It doesn't take a pastor to become well-versed in the Word, in the Bible. You don't have to be a pastor in order to preach. Somebody say amen. No. Jesus has called you and me in whatever sphere of influence to be a light like Stephen was. And one of the things that is of most importance is that we actually remember the story of God. We have to remember the story. This is what Stephen recalls in this great moment of evangelistic need. What happened is that uh, Stephen was just doing his thing, living an authentic Christian life, and religious leaders began to be mad about it. Hasn't that happened to you as a Christian where you're just living a Christian life, essentially you have particular convictions and somehow as you are salt and light in your profession in your community at school it just kind of like makes people upset that's what happens here in a in, in a well you'll see it he recalls in this moment the story and he starts talking about the story of abraham He starts making meaning out of that story. And then he starts talking about the story of Joseph. And then he starts talking about the story of Moses. And then he mentions three really important themes in this entire sermon. He talks about the land and the law and the temple. And I don't know about you. When I was growing up, I grew up in church a little bit. I didn't come to know Jesus maybe until I was like 11 or 12 or so. But I remember hearing some of these concepts and I'm like, Okay, cool, the land, the law, and the temple. Why do we have to know all these things? Why does this matter? Here's why it matters. Have you ever watched, um, how many of you ever been to watch a show? Yeah? Yeah, most, maybe mostly all of us. Okay, if you haven't, dude, let's talk after. We need you. We need you to lead. Okay, we need you to lead. Um, We need you to lead, absolutely, Uh, the next generation. So uh, anyways, um, isn't it incredible when you're watching, especially a long series, like not just one season, but like seven seasons, one of those? (laughs) Not that I've done that, okay? Um, But for those of you that have done that, um, what happens is as you're learning all of these different puzzle pieces, as you watch the end, and all of a sudden everything comes together, in this like catalytic moment isn't it incredibly satisfying to yourself you're like i can put all of the pieces together and you get in conversations with people and it's like no do you remember what happened and the thing there was this little thing and you didn't see it but it was you dude there was a bird that flew and that signified this like seven seasons later and it's just incredible (laughs) do you know what i'm talking about that that's that's what happens when you're watching a show or a great film those details help you give a sense of wonder to the story they actually fill the meaning in a more incredible way sometimes what happens is the christian imagination has been um sedated it's like sometimes all that we can remember and this is this is really important is that jesus died on the cross for our sins and that's incredible that's incredible But when you understand the details of the story, it it would be like just watching, like instead of watching like 10 minutes of a great movie, that you're like, wow, the sixth sense, dude, the dude is actually dead, right? Amazing. Um, Instead of just watching that and being satisfied with watching the ending, or if you're one of those people that read the ends of the book right before you read the beginning, you need prayer at the end, okay? Um, Listen. It's like it's actually like reading the whole story and understanding it and grasping it in this incredible way. What happens is you actually gain a sense of place from understanding and remembering the entire story. There's a delight to knowing the pieces of the story that you're a part of of knowing the story of God. I'm gonna give you one example out of these themes in this sermon. Stephen talks about the temple, okay? Somebody asked, why is the temple important? The temple temple is important because it's all over the Scriptures. Thank you so much for asking. I know you're interested. (laughs) Genesis, okay? In the book of Genesis, some people say that that's a kind of temple because a temple is where God and man meet, okay? That's where it's kind of like the first idea of a temple. And then if you keep reading the Bible, then you'll see that there's a tabernacle in the middle of the desert. And you'll see that then God wants to dwell among his people in Israel in the temple. You get to the New Testament, you hear that Jesus Christ, Christmas is coming. Guess what? He came down and he tabernacled among us. He dwelled with us. And then you read that we're the temple of God and that Jesus is the temple. If you don't understand this theme, you're going to read the Bible and you're like, dude, I don't know what this means. But then you're going to go to the end of the movie and you're like, but Jesus still wins in the end, which is great. But you want to understand the theme. This is what Stephen is doing here in this impromptu sermon. Okay, this is, what he, this is what he does. He says this. It was Solomon, verse 37, who built him a house. He's taking him back to the Old Testament. He's reminding them of the story of God and what God had done. But the Most High doesn't dwell in sanctuaries made with hands, as the prophet says. Look at verse 49. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what will be my resting place? Did not my hand make all of these things? What's Stephen saying? What's he talking about? He's talking about this concept of the temple. He's saying, hey, the temple is a God and a good thing, but it doesn't contain the power to save you. He is confronting the religious people that are in front of him who placed so much importance in this edifice, in this place where they would bring sacrifices and where they would do life and where people would pray. And it was really important, but the temple wasn't what saved you. Just like coming to church is not what saves you. He's saying God doesn't just dwell in this particular place. You you need something else. The temple is not what makes you righteous. Just church attendance is not what makes somebody righteous before the Lord. Somebody say amen. Amen. No. So why should that matter to us? Because this theme, right, is all over the scriptures, and it helps us to understand who God is and what he has done. I'm going to tell you, Stephen really challenged me this week. He really challenged me. This dude knows the Bible. I'm like, yo, this guy impromptu just gave like one of the most important sermons of all time. And sometimes I have found myself in the past saying things like this um, and and with good meaning. I don't know if maybe you've said this. If you follow Jesus for some time, maybe you'll say something like, hey, you know what? In humility, we'll say things like, man, if you take a look at this book, and you study it for 35 years, you only scratch the surface. That's right? right? You, ever, you ever said that to yourself? Yes. With good and humility and all of that? No, that's true. But sometimes we can say those things as an excuse not to learn what's in this book. I had a professor one time give us this really powerful illustration. He said, you know what's interesting? And I want to give you this today. You can learn this. You see, if you think about the will of God and what He'd done and His revelation, and let's say this book is like, I don't know, 600 pages, maybe less like you can learn this. You can know the story. You can remember it. Amen. Somebody say, "Amen. You can learn this. You don't have to just walk knowing the 10 minutes of how the story ends. You can live in wonder. Because his revelation has been made available to you and to me. You can do what Stephen did because Stephen is just like me, right? You can say that to yourself. Stephen is just like me. Here's a question for us as you place yourself in that story. Would you be ready to preach this kind of sermon? Would you be ready, right? Right? It's not enough for us to prioritize teaching it. You have to prioritize learning the story. You got to prioritize learning the story. Because like Stephen, you are going to be called to respond and to share your story in different places in this world. And you're not going to be like, you you won't be able to prepare for an entire week before you deliver something. (laughs) You're going to have to do it in that moment. Haven't you been caught in that at work or at school? Why do you believe what you believe in? You, know, you, know, you, know, there you, can, you can learn the story. You can master the story. Amen? Here's what remembering the story did for Stephen and what it will do for you and for me. It reminds us. I love what Sally Lloyd-Jones says. She says, you're reminded of the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God. The never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God we have to remember your story that's how you find your place in it right but is it enough to remember the story no part of the critique of remembering a story is that you can become what religious right you can become a Pharisee that's the critique sometimes what happens is you have people that remembered facts and figures but they didn't understand the faithfulness and the heart of God It would be a mistake to overreact to the religious nature of Pharisees. It's a mistake to not look at the Scripture in depth because we're afraid that we might become religious. Okay? Don't be deceived by that. Don't be deceived that, man, you know what, if I read more of the Bible, I'm just going to become religious. No, no. The point is obviously not only to master the story, but to be mastered by it. And there's a difference. You have to remember the story. But number two, you have to live it. You have to live out the story. You have to live it out. I love what Richard Baxter says. He says, I preached as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying man. I preached as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying man. How do we live out the story? This is what Stephen did essentially. This is how Stephen preached as a dying man to dying man man humankind this is how this is how i want to preach this is how i hope you want to preach in your particular environment he didn't know just the story he didn't just know facts he's enacting it in front of people he's living in it nothing is more beautiful in christianity that when your life is a display of what you preach isn't that cool isn't that the ultimate apologetic when you're hanging around christians who actually walk the talk who can walk in repentance, who can say, I'm sorry, who you could see the display of Jesus in their life wherever you are, right? At work, at school, like you actually see that, dude, this person is real. That's how I came to know Jesus. I grew up in the church, and at home, I was able to see my mom and my grandmother. They were like legitimate Christians. They were legit, and I had all these arguments, and I kind of grew up a little philosophical, you know? And I know it made my mom angry, okay? <laughs> Why do we have to do this? Why the Bible? Why this? Why, you know... But I'm telling you, the ultimate apologetic at the end of their life, at the end of, at the end, like for me, it was they were legitimate, authentic Christians. They lived the story. They lived it. Do you know that Christians over history, this is what we've done? This is part of our heritage. It's what the Bible calls our witness. The early church was so powerful in this that even an emperor, his name, Emperor Julian, for instance, one of the fiercest persecutors of, of the early church, he was uh, dubbed Julian the Apostate. This is what he writes. We have these letters in church history and just history. He says, these infernal Galileans, talking about Christians, feed our poor in addition to their own. In other words, Christians, they walked the talk. They lived out the story. You know what Stephen did? Stephen was a man just like you and me. Stephen served. Stephen was a man of word. Stephen was a man of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen live the story. It's a story of adventure. It's a story of faith. When's the last time that you could say to yourself, man, I'm living a life by faith. I'm living by faith. I'm not, I'm not depending just on myself, but I'm depending on God. Can you say that today? If you are bored today of Christianity... I want to show you this graph real quick, okay? Look, it's going to come up. I've shared this with you in the past. Um, It's called the redemptive edge. It's not mine, okay? This comes from a brother in New York City by the name of John Tyson, okay? he says, he talks about this redemptive edge. Let me me show you this, okay? Generally, what happens in in the United States and in the West is that the church kind of lives between caution and comfort. Can you see that? Caution and comfort. And so... Um, when you start getting serious about your faith, um, people kind of grow like, they're concerned about you. Dude, are you becoming a little radical? What's going on with you? You okay? I see you going to church, dude. Like, you're praying every day. You're reading the Bible. I'm concerned, okay? You're going from caution to be careful, be careful around those Christians you can kind of stay in comfort. Man, it's so cool. The kids program here is so good. I could just drop them off, get free, baby. you know, just freedom for like an hour and a half. Okay, that's cool. It's okay. I've been there, all right? But then you start getting serious and you start taking steps of faith and people start growing concerned. This is, this is getting serious, dude. Your choices are being affected by your faith. But here's where Jesus lived and when you see Stephen lived. you know where Christianity is best lived? right here in this redemptive edge between criticism and darkness isn't this where jesus lived look eating with sinners he's spending time with women in a culture that did not value women there's the pharisaical traditions who does he choose as disciples the most educated men no he chooses fishermen people from galilee it's like this dude, you know what he decided? He, he, it's a coming down to Miami, okay? And I love Alapata. What am I about to say? If you live there, I don't mean anything evil about Alapata, But it is like, instead of going to Brickle in the Grove, you know where he went? I'm going to go to Alapata, And I'm going to pick these dudes out. And we're going to serve. That's what happened here, okay? You guys know what I'm talking about, Alapata, right? You know it. That's a neighborhood in Miami, okay? Just FYI. That's the equivalent of Galilee. In darkness, look, he goes to Samaria. When you, What you're seeing in the book of Acts with Stephen is a man who's not obsessed with a comfortable Christianity. But he's walking here in between criticism and darkness. Why? Because he understands that if you're going to live a compelling story, a better story, you can't just do it here. You have to live by faith. In this redemptive edge, when you place yourself in that position of faith, in that redemptive edge, man, you're positioning yourself to see God work in incredible ways. Christians, we walk the talk. It's in it, isn't it interesting when you look at the life of Stephen, he lived between criticism, and darkness, and just because you live the story the way it's supposed to be lived doesn't mean it has a happy ending. That's not what happens with Stephen. Steve, Stephen did everything right and he ended up dead. What happened? I mean, why didn't God just like reward him and bless him and grow his ministry and multiply his days? I don't know. But if you read verse 58 you're going to see this very important fact of the story. It says this, they laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. How do we know about this sermon today? There was a man listening to the sermon, the entire thing. In fact, some theologians say if you look at the theme of the sermon of Stephen, you're going to see that theme all over the letters of a man named Paul in the New Testament. Do you see what happened here? Saul was watching as every stone smashed stephen's face and his body was mangled into this bloody heap Saul heard the pleas of stephen before god and he reflected on his faith and something happened in the heart of saul that he never forgot the church father tertullian says the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church Stephen's most effective contribution to the kingdom of God, it doesn't come from growing this large ministry. It comes from his martyrdom, from giving up his life. Why? (laughs) It affects one man who becomes the greatest evangelist in the New Testament, a man who at this point had not come to know Jesus, a man by the name of Saul. Sometimes our greatest contribution, right, is not going to be the super large thing that we build. It's just going to be the faithfulness of today. Stephen lived out the story, and if you want to live a compelling story, man, that starts with obedience, which is real Christianity. Amen? Look, we not only have to remember the story, we have to live it, okay? And then we have to respond to it. Now, I don't, wanna, I, don't wanna, I don't want you to miss this, especially if you're here and you're suffering somehow. I don't want you to miss that sometimes the sermons that you preach through your pain are more impactful than the sermons that you preach in your blessings. That's what happens with the life of Stephen. So you have to remember the story. You have to live it. And then number three, you have to respond to it you got to respond to it. Look at how they responded in verse 51. Stephen rebukes them. You stiff-necked people. Okay? What he means by that is it's it's people that can't like see right? What's going on around them. It was like a big insult back in the day. They're not seeing the work of God. You know, it's like you're not looking, you're not understanding what God has been up to all of these years and he says You have uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. In other words, God has been sending, and he's been on this plan of rescuing for thousands of years and the story has been the same. He sent a deliverer through Moses. He sent deliverance through Joseph, and they wanted to kill him. He sent this deliverance in these different ways and these different um, periods of grace, and you chose to reject him and kill him, and you did the same with Jesus, the righteous one. You received the law under the direction of angels, and you have not kept it. So Stephen makes a final accusation before his death. He says you're You have uncircumcised hearts and what he means by that circumcision was understood metaphorically as the cutting away of pride and sinfulness in your heart so what he's saying about these religious people is you have hard hearts you have a hard heart your heart is cold it doesn't receive anything it's not soft and receptive you are stubborn and i'm reminding you of the story of god And instead of it actually cultivating sensibility inside of your soul, it's cultivating callousness. How do you respond to the story of God? Listen, if you're here and maybe it's your first time hearing about the story of God and the story of Christ, what happens is you can respond to the story of God in one of um, two ways. You can respond in resistance, okay? And that generally looks like, number one, avoidance. You can avoid it. You can avoid it. I'm just going to numb my mind with something else rather than think about the ultimate things in life. It's like that's too much. Eternity, heaven and hell, meaning and life, purpose. You know what? I just got to get to work today, right? You avoid it. You watch shows. You do your thing. Sometimes it turns into an addiction of other things, etc. You're numbing your life rather than thinking about the things that matter most, which is why when you go to important things like a wedding or a funeral or where Christmas comes, suddenly you're confronted by the truth, of these lives, of, of, of life. That's when you think about ultimate things. It's when you're away at college and the honeymoon period of being a freshman is over. And now you're like, wow, I'm here for the next three or four years. And it's cool, but I'm away from home and I don't really know who I am. In those moments, you'll begin to think about ultimate things in life. And you have a choice when you hear the message of Jesus. You can avoid it altogether, numbing yourself to death. Or number two, you can respond in anger. You can respond in anger. Look at what, look at how they respond here. When they heard these things, they were enraged and they gnashed their teeth at him. Why were they so angry? Why were they so angry? They could not accept the message of Jesus being, if you heard Stephen, he called them the righteous one. They thought that the right standing before God in this whole sermon they thought that the right standing before God came through the law that it came through the land and that it came through the temple you see this is what Stephen is doing he's like hey you think that because where you live because where you were born because of your inheritance you're entitled to have a relationship with Jesus you think that because you've made these decisions And that because you're religious and because you do good works, you think that this is going to save you. You think that because you go to the temple, that because you go to church, you're in right standing before God. But I'm here to tell you, you are wrong. Your righteousness only comes through Jesus Christ. And when they heard that, when they heard, when they were confronted, when they were confronted with their sin, with the fact that what they've done put Jesus on the cross, separated us between God and ourselves. When they were confronted with that truth, and they responded with anger, and they end up killing Stephen. And he says this. I, want, I don't want you to miss this. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit. When I thought about that line, if you don't remember anything else today, look, I want you to ask yourself the question, where am I resisting the Holy Spirit? What happens is when we're confronted with the message of Jesus, we can resist the Holy Spirit. If you've already trusted in Jesus, listen to me. If you've trusted in Him, then what happens is you can resist the Holy Spirit by not making the choices that you know you need to make. You can resist your, the Holy Spirit by choosing to not be obedient in a particular area. Where in your life are you resisting the Holy Spirit? Is it unforgiveness? Maybe you look at your home, your family life. You can look at your finances. Look at your relationship with the bride of Christ, with the church. Where are you resisting the Holy Spirit at work? For some of you, maybe you're just resisting the Holy Spirit when it comes to giving your life to Jesus. See, there was a different message in Acts chapter 2. I want you to see the difference on how people responded. Here they responded in anger by resisting the Holy Spirit. But do you remember, if you were here maybe a couple weeks ago in Acts chapter 2, Peter was giving a sermon. And you know how people respond? Look, it's in Acts chapter 2. When they heard this, when they heard the message, they were peers to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do And Peter says, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, you can respond today to the message of Jesus either by resisting him or by repenting. What Jesus wants from you and me, In order to be able to live a better story is we're entering his, that he came. He lived the life that you could not live. He was the righteous one, the righteousness that we receive before God. In order to stand before the Lord, to be called a daughter and a son, we need the righteousness of Jesus, and he freely gives it to us. And he says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, guess what? That you will be saved from your sins. And the way we receive that is not by resisting him, but by repenting. And repentance means basically we just turn the other way and we choose to walk before the Lord. Amen? Some of us today, you know what we need to do? We need to stop resisting the Holy Spirit. And we need to repent of our sins so that we can be forgiven from them. And receive the Holy Spirit of God. Do you want that today? Do you want that in your life? Because Jesus offers it to you freely. In fact, people have died because of it. And I want to give you an opportunity to be able to meditate on this and to respond to it this morning.